you brought a Bible, please open it to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 13. That's right, chapter 13. We've got two more weeks left in this wonderful study. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 16. And next week we'll uh, finish the book. And then after Labor Day, we'll start our new fall series in the book of Ecclesiastes. So I want to keep reminding you of that. If you um, are using the Bible there in the pew, we're on page 1009, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word at this time. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some, of, some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as those in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their life, their way of life, and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burnt outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Verse 13, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no, la- here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, uh, we pause and we ask that you would be with us at this time. We pray for your spirit to graciously be poured over us in a way that opens our eyes and our ears to see and hear things otherwise we could not. And would you... Allow this word to grow in our hearts to produce a fruit that we would leave here changed people. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Many of you all have by now seen the HBO series Band of Brothers. And there's uh, many wonderful scenes throughout the series. But um, in one particular episode... There's a scene where the army is outside of Carentan, France, and there's a soldier named Blythe. And Blythe is in this foxhole, and he is, his whole life is consumed with fear at this moment. I mean, there are bullets whizzing by, uh, there are bodies screaming, and uh, it, you know, this, everything is, is a mess. 
Um, but there's this one scene um, that he begins to talk about how it is that he got to be in this foxhole because he, he's not a part of the company in which he's attached to now. Um, he's a part of a, was a part of a different company. <clears throat> and he has found himself in the hands of Easy Company, which is the company that Band of Brothers is about. But he talks about how he was separated from his unit after having blacked out in fear after parachuting in on D-Day. And when he came to, his unit had left him, and so he just sort of hid there in the ditch. And he's telling the story in this episode to one of the most interesting characters of the series, Sergeant or Captain Spears. And Captain Spears is listening to him, and this is what Captain Spears says to him in this moment. He says, you know why you hid in that ditch, Blythe? And Blythe looks at him and says, because I was scared. And he says, no, we're all scared, this is Spears. You hid in that ditch because you think there's still hope. But Blythe, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function without mercy, without compassion, without remorse. All war depends on it. And Spears runs off. I start here this morning because in many ways, the Christians that this letter was written to, as we have been saying, find themselves like, like Blythe in this very moment, controlled by fear. And there's good fear, right? We, we enjoy being scared at times and there's healthy fear. But the fear that we're talking about for the sake of this morning is, is the fear that is in the absence of love. That represents the absence of love. But these Christians are afraid. They're afraid of death. <laughs> their fear, um, they're afraid of, of being uh, considered traitors, as we've said all along, um, excommunicated by their families. They're afraid also of what will happen when Nero's armies come riding in. We've, we, we've, we've talked about that throughout this series of the persecution that Christians who would follow Jesus, what that would ultimately mean to them. And the question before us at this point in this letter, which is certainly the question before them as the author begins to end, is what are you going to do? How are you going to live? Is fear going to define you or is something else? And what does it look like for the Christian both then and now to sort of crawl out of the foxhole as it were and to function as a Christian is supposed to function this side of the death and the resurrection of Jesus? That is what we are faced with this morning. That is what these Christians were faced with as they face the presence of fear, fear in their own hearts. Fear in their own lives for what it will mean to confess Jesus and to follow him. And so to get at that, outline's a little bit different. I want to look at these three things. I want to look at the challenge in the passage, as you see, and the calling of the passage. But I also want us to look at the promise in the passage as well. Okay? So the challenge, the calling, and the promise in the passage So let's look at the first one, the challenge in the passage. As we start chapter 13, the author leaves us with what seems to be a list of things to do, right? You see it there. Let brotherly love continue. Show hospitality to strangers. Honor marriage. Don't be a slave to money and so on. And you have to be wondering if even the audience was wondering, look, are you, have you forgotten where we are? 
Have you forgotten the circumstances that we're in? Have you forgotten, um, you know, at any moment, right, we could be excommunicated, as we said, or we could be killed. But you're asking us to do these good things, these, these works. What, what, what is, what, have you forgotten? And I would argue the author has not forgotten. He just sees that there are really two choices here for his audience. Either you're going to follow Jesus or you are not. It's about as simple as it gets. And these things that the author lists are really tangibles of what it looks like in these circumstances, and I would argue our own, to allow fear to be driven out by love and to follow him regardless of what that means. In other words, chapter 13 is asking the question, what is ultimately driving you? What is dictating the decisions that you make on a daily basis? How are you deciding how you will live and why? And one of those drivers that surrounds the lives of these Christians to whom the whole book of Hebrews is written and certainly us as well is fear. I would argue that it's probably the weight that's in mind back in chapter 12 that he is asking them to drop. These people are afraid. At the end of the day, what this all comes down to is what will dictate your next steps. Will it be fear or will it be love? Because the only way that we can follow Jesus in the ways that this author is describing in this chapter, the only way that we are able to follow him begins by allowing the fear that is attached to following Jesus to be driven out by the perfect love of Jesus. Let me say that one more time. The only way that we can follow Jesus in this way that the chapter begins is by allowing the fear that is attached to following Jesus to be driven out by the perfect love of Jesus. Which is why the author quotes for us Psalm 56 there. Don't flip the Psalm 56, but if you were to read verse 3, you would read, When I am afraid, this is David talking, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, and God I trust, I will not fear. For what can man do to me? David wrote that psalm after he fled for his life from King Saul and as he hid in a cave. This is the same David, by the way, who had killed Goliath. And so notice that David doesn't say, I'm never afraid or I I, I am not afraid for the answer to what man can do to me is a lot. We're not trying to muscle up some unrealistic expectations. Like, yeah, there's, there's a lot to be afraid of here. But here's the point. He admits his fear and he doesn't wait for it to go away before he acts in faith. And this is what the author is saying to his audience as he begins to close this letter. Look, of course you're afraid. Of course you are. Who wouldn't be? Look, you're going to have to make decisions that would probably or might possibly be the end of your life. But are you going to let that fear control you? Are you going to let that fear guide your life, drive you? And the author is simply saying, don't. Instead, let the love of Christ drive that fear out as you follow him, as you continue in brotherly love, as you open your homes to strangers, 
as you live in a manner that reflects the lordship of Christ. Like David, the more that we move out in faith, and this is sort of the paradox, the more we move out in faith, the more we actually move towards Jesus when we are afraid, something begins to happen. The grace of God becomes tangible to us in a way when we move towards him in fear. And in that grace, the love of God comes in and it drives that fear away. And we'll see this in the, in the, in the coming cha- uh, verses here. But it drives out that fear because it tells you what you most want to know in your whole entire life. And you, know, you want to know what that is? It's not wondering if you're going to live. It's not wondering, wondering if you're going to die like Blythe. It's wondering if you're loved. That's your fear. That's all of our fears. In the heart of hearts, where our fear rests the most, it's wondering whether or not I am loved. Listen to what Tim Keller says. says, The gospel destroys pride because it tells us we are so lost that Jesus had to die for us. And it also destroys fearfulness because it tells us that nothing we can do will exhaust his love for us. This is the decision point that the audience has come to. Has Jesus been put on display for you in this letter such that it destroys your fear because it assures you that nothing you do will exhaust his love for you? We've been talking about mediators. We've been talking about this this wonderful high priest. We've been talking about all these images that assure what? That you are loved. Has it done that? Or is fear going to continue to guide you? Because it isn't the fear of death that paralyzes us. It's the fear of not being loved. And our lives are either shaped by that fear as we navigate life to prove we are loved by what we do. A lot of possible applications for that we won't touch on right now. Or we see that we truly are loved and nothing can take that away. And that begins to shape our lives as we move out into this world. This is the challenge of the text, fear or love. (laughs) What is it going to be? And it is the challenge that you and I face every single day. Well, if I choose to follow Christ, if 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 I allow his love to come in and guide me and drive out that fear, where is that love going to take me? Might be your question. If I choose to follow Jesus, where is that following going to lead? And this gets to the second point there on your outline, the calling in the text. Where does Jesus, where does following Jesus send us? It sends us into difficult places, places we otherwise would not go. Where does Jesus send us? Sends us into difficult places, places we otherwise would not go. Some of you are excited about college football starting up. I don't know who that would be in this room. Um, but, you know, a, a couple of examples to sort of highlight this. I remember being in college, and I remember listening to guys that they would go, to, go away on road trips to, to watch the game. Um, and it seemed like at least once a month we would have the conversation or the debate of what is the worst play, what is the worst, uh, you know, college campus to go to where the fans are just despicable. This is what we talked about most of the time while we were in college. And it was interesting to me um, because at the time I didn't really go to a lot of away games. I had other, other things I was more interested in at that time, like air conditioning and, and TV. Um, but he, here's, here's what this would boil down to. 
right? As we as guys debated this, they would they would almost badge you know a badge of honor, talk about how you know this is the place that you would you would drive to all night, maybe maybe sleep in your car or or worse, some horrendous couch in a fraternity house, right? You would travel long distances, you would go to the game where fans would would throw beer at you, and then you would leave. Uh, and probably, you know, be assaulted by an eight, verbally assaulted by an 80-year-old woman. You know, that was sort of what, what got the winner here. If you go here, like, they don't care. Age doesn't matter. They will dog cuss you. Um, and, and, and then this is great, I guess. I don't know. But this is, this is, you know, this is what we would argue about as to this is the worst place to go. And so I guess, well, why would you do that? Why would you go to those places? Another example that I was thinking about is that, you know, parents with kids have those moments, too, where if you took a snapshot of any given day, you might see something, you know, where in this snapshot you could say, Look, I don't even remember the last time I had a shower or changed my clothes. Uh, I don't know when I had conversation with adult people. Right? You're holding throw up in one hand and a dirty diaper in the other. You can count on one hand the number of hours of actual sleep you've had in the month. What in the world would send someone to that place if we could objectively look at it, much like a road game to a college campus? The answer is simple. It's what, it's what or who you love that sends you to those places. Right? It's, what, it's what or who you love that sends you to those places. We don't think twice about holding throw up and diapers in our hands because we love our kids. And because we love our kids, we'll go to difficult places. Because we love our sports teams, we'll go to difficult places and we'll love it. You know, it'll be great. And we'll talk about it for years. The same is true for following Jesus. It's your love of him that says, okay, I'll, I'll go. We just had a wonderful missionary moment about that. I will go. Knowing that following him, though, often leads to difficult places, places we otherwise would never in our wildest dreams want to go to. And the question before this audience in chapter 13 is, is is going to Jesus, is standing with him, is sure to take you to places you don't want to go. Places that are difficult in and of themselves, but places that bring shame and embarrassment to you by going there. Are you going to do that? The theology here is interesting in verses 10 to 16. It brings us back to this temple language that we've heard of in the the previous chapters with altars and offerings and food laws. And what the author wants to do is he wants to compare the old way of the temple or what Jerusalem represents to the new way, to Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. It's coded language a little bit. But as we've, we've done a lot in this series, we have to go back to this day of atonement. And we have to remember that when the high priest would make this sacrifice for the sins of the people, he would take that offering out to the people. But that offering could not stay there in the presence of the people because of its shame, of what it represented, of its disgust. And it had to be taken and removed, geographically removed, outside the camp where it was burned, it was consumed, where it was annihilated. So representing to the people, this is your sin as well. It is gone. It's gone. Now... On other days, on other sacrificing, other, other days of sacrifice than the Day of Atonement, you didn't have to do this burnt offering in this way where you had to remove it and then consume it in fire. You would offer it, but if there was any meat left over, Jewish custom allowed you to partake of that. 
And that's kind of what he's tying into here a little bit. But on the Day of Atonement, the significance here is what's being pointed to. That the animal sacrifice representing the full measure of your sin and the sacrifice of what that animal represents. The shame and the rejection that had to be taken outside, away from the people in its presence. And and what what the author is saying is this is what Jesus has finally come to do and fulfill for you. He has gone outside. He has been... He has been the full representation of shame and of rejection for you. Look again here at verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent, that's the old way, have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. What is he saying? It said it, it's, it's coded in a way. But he is saying what I just mentioned, that the special offering of the Day of Atonement that was taken outside, that has found its completion in Jesus. But this has consequences for you. Because if you are to follow him, that means that you are going to have to go stand with him outside as well. And this is what he directs us to in verse 13. Look at it. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. And bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. In other words, let us not be afraid of what will happen to us if we stand with him. Whether that be shame, rejection, loss. Go to him. Go to him. For this is not our home, friends. Our true home is coming. As one commentator puts it, the point he, the author, is making is that the followers of Jesus are to be happy to leave the city and its temple, even though their fellow Jews will regard them as traitors and heap shame on them. This is the calling in the text. And I I don't think it's unfair to ask, will you go for whatever that might look like for you? Will you give your life away to the things that Jesus' new kingdom, his lasting city, point towards? The things that he died for. Like loving people you and I don't want to love. Like standing for things that might cause others in your family, in your life, in your place of work to think of you as a traitor. Or that would you or that would bring shame to your name because it was clear. Which Jesus you were following and which Jesus you were not following. This is a rubber meets the road moment here in this book. (laughs) But I want to push in a little bit further. All right. This is certainly a touchy subject right now, but we need not avoid it. I love, love, love this country. I love what it stands for more than any of you. I know it's not perfect and there are lots of things that need to change, but there is no place like America in this world. And I, I love that. I love it. Which means for me as a Christian, as someone who professes faith, I have to constantly be asking myself, would I leave this place and what it stands for in order to stand with Jesus and his new kingdom and what that ultimately calls me to? 
Where is my citizenship? Would I do it? And more importantly, do I even see a distinction between the two places? Because sometimes I don't. And when those two places are synonymous, that's when I begin to worry about myself. Are they the same to me? Because as I learn to follow the Jesus in the Gospels, I learn to love, I, I learn of a love that distinguishes, that does not blend in, which is exactly what he's calling his people to here. The Old Testament word for this was holy, which literally means set apart. Is the church in America truly set apart and distinguishable from America? That is a question we have to ask ourselves. Which means we must continue to ask, where does the church in America need to look less like America? I don't want to answer these questions for myself. I don't like these questions, whatever that looks like, wherever the church is in America, wherever that needs to look less like America. Here's why I don't like that question. That's a difficult place for me to go. And I'm just being honest. And it's difficult for me to go there. Right, to think about how the church needs to look different than this country because I am full of fear. I am afraid of what it would mean for my life, what it would mean for my reputation, for my advancement of my career. It's on the table. And you've got to know that it is the same for these Christians in this text and their Jewish heritage as well. Where's their citizenship? Where are they going to go? Are they going to stay inside the camp? Are they going to go outside and stand with Jesus? Friends, that is a hard question. I am not acting as though this is something that you need to be doing a better job of. I'm pointing this at myself. And some might say, as I even counter in my own mind, well, Ryan, there are important fights to be fought. There are things this country stands for that we should fight over. And friends, there are. Just as there were for these Christians in this day. But perhaps what this text is asking us is how is the church fighting? Is it by continuing in brotherly love? Is it by opening your house to strangers, to people you don't agree with, to people you don't even know? Is it by honoring marriage? And look, it's not just campaigning for its definition, which is important. But are you honoring your marriage? That's the most important marriage. And the world needs to see that. Are we dethroning our money? And that scares me to death. But if we don't go here, we don't get the weight of these verses. We don't understand what these people, the fears of these people, what they are. And if we don't understand the fears of these people, if we don't understand our own fears, then the promise of the text, which we're about to hear, is going to mean nothing to us. And that's my biggest fear for us. I'm not trying to get you to do a list of things, although that would be great. I'm trying to get you to see Jesus as more beautiful and believable than anything your heart would want to go after. But as we look at this list and as we look at these things now, do you know what these things do? They set you apart. They define where you stand. Will I go? Will we go? 
We'll following, where following Jesus calls us, no matter how difficult that place is, certainly to places otherwise I would not want to go. How does this text begin to shine a light into what or who I truly love? So far, we've seen the challenge in this passage and the calling in this passage. And lastly, let's look at the promise in this passage. What Jesus promises us when we follow him, no matter how afraid we are or how afraid we are of where that takes us, he promises this one thing, friends, and he says, I will go there with you. The promise in this passage is that Jesus will be with us. This is why the author in verse 5 quotes Joshua 1.5, where he says, "Before This is before Israel were to cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, a moment of sure fear and terror. Go read about it, right? You have, you have this puny army that is Israel, and you have this, the multitude of chariots and horses of the Canaanites. And we're to cross this river, and we're to go in there, and we're to take this land... Yeah, I'm a little afraid. I'm a little afraid. And, and he's got, he wants his audience to, to get into that moment with them. And this is why he quotes to them from Joshua, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then in verse 9 of Joshua 1, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. There's that word again. And do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And this, friends, is the defining act of love in our life. It is the promise in the passage. No, it is the promise, dare I say, from bookend to bookend of of, of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, that God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you wherever you go. In other words, right there in the middle of our passage in Hebrews 13, verse 8, Right in the middle, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what he's telling you. His love will never end. This is the promise in the passage that Jesus goes with us as we move in faith and obedience to him. He goes with us into those places where we otherwise would not want to go. And death, let's just go right to it, is the ultimate picture of this. It is what this audience is afraid of, and it is what we are afraid of. None of us want to die. It's a great segue for Ecclesiastes. Death is really the ultimate enemy of which all of our fears are housed, because death is all that is cut off. Death is separation from those that you love and those that you care about. It is the removal from what is familiar, from what, is, from what you know of inside the camp, to something God-awful, the Sheol as the Old Testament calls it, the pit where Jesus himself went and died himself. (laughs) But where has Jesus gone for you already? He has gone outside. That's what this text is telling you. He has tasted death already. In other words, he was cut off so that you and I would never have to be cut off forever. Not even in death. So that when that moment comes, he will go with you and he will bring you to himself. That's why the fear of not being loved is the ultimate fear. You will not be alone even in your most lonely moment. 
Friends, how does this kind of love not fill you and drive out the fear that keeps us from offering up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name? No matter where that takes us, no matter what that costs, we've seen the challenge, the calling, and the promise of the passage. I want to just leave you with this. I want to take you back to Blythe and his foxhole. where he was hiding, uh, afraid to move, bullets whizzing by, people screaming. And I want to take you back to that moment where he begins to tell Sergeant Spears why he's in this hole. But I want you to imagine that Sergeant Spears doesn't tell him what I read to you at the beginning of this sermon. He doesn't tell you uh, that that the reason you're afraid is because you think there's still hope of living. Instead, I want you to imagine that Sergeant Spears looks at him and he says, Blythe, the war is over. The war's over. You have nothing to fear. Get up out of that hole and let's go live. I I, got to end there because I can't think of a better illustration of what Jesus has been saying to us throughout this entire book. He has been looking at us through his blood, through his cross, and he is saying the war is over, friends. I have won. You have nothing to fear. You have absolutely nothing to fear. And that's really the author's plea to his audience and us. There is nothing for us to to fear. Therefore, you can graciously lay down your life for others. Hospitality, service, anything that says, I am a follower of this one true king. Because there's nothing that you can take away from me. But here's the deal. Unlike what Spears says to Blythe, What keeps us in that hole, what keeps our lives from being directed and guided by fear is not the loss of hope of living. It is the fear of not being loved. You being loved will get you out of that hole. What the cross of Jesus shouts over you every second of every day is you could not be more loved yesterday, today, and forever. It is both the how and the why we decide to get out of that hole, as it were, and to stop living our lives guided by fear and to start giving our lives away as a testimony of the wonderful grace of God in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful way to end this letter. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are wise above, among, are wise above all things. You go in a direction that we would never go because our hearts are played with fear. I would never ever think of ending this letter in this way. To call people into service. To call people away from fear. Where I would be guided and directed by fear. And so I pray that in, 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 in that context, we pr- I pray that your gospel would meet us there. That it would, it would show us the areas of our lives where fear truly is winning. And that the love that you have offered us on your cross, the promise of your resurrection, and that we too will resurrect one day as well. That that love would be the love that drives out that fear. And causes us to do wonderful things for your kingdom, for your people. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen.